Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with the One Nation Under Whiskey podcast. Podcast. I'm joined today and 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 basically every other week and every other odd week with uh, with my main man here, the the big Jason Jy, the big Jason Johnston Yellen. Jason, three names, four names, two names, however names you want to give them, uh, from, from Virginia, well, not from Virginia, but living in the beautiful state of euphoria of, of, of Virginia. How are you? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't, I don't have his email in front of me, but James Foster, after the mailbag episode, wrote in and said, essentially, why did you spend any time reading my nonsense? Like, cause it's good. I like it a lot. You it's know, a, it was, it was a warm up. It was stretching the old brain muscle. But, but I would argue that that there, there, there's a horde of listeners who would have the same question to you <laughs> as James. To. Like, why did you endeavor to hurt people's brains in our <laughs> in our mailbag episode by reading the most painful? email that could ever have been delivered to us, Jason. Because we were just like stretching before a marathon or, you know, drinking water on the day you're going to go for a world record on pizza consumption. Mm. It's just what you do. You just have to, you have to put in the hard work Mm -hmm. to get to the good work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you and I have, have put in some easy work, I would say. Over these past five, now now entering into six years, I think we've done a, a good job, hopefully a good job, of of interviewing people. <laughs> yeah, what if what if it wasn't a good job? What if it's just been shit this entire time, Jason? <laughs> what, what if we don't really get fifty thousand streams and downloads a month? <laughs> They're just bots. Or an episode. I don't. I don't look at the numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're all bots, yeah. <laughs> Bleep, Lorp, this is a great episode. <laughs> so hopefully we've done a decent job interviewing people uh, around the world, mostly in Scotland, some in the U.S., some in Australia, uh, a bit in, in India, around traditional whiskey production or traditional rum production or traditional sherry production in, in that one odd case with our friend uh, Mario. Can I can I pause you right here? Can we put a pin in this right here? Yeah. I mean, where's the pin going to go? Right here. How? How? Have you seen Free Guy? Ryan Reynolds. Do you know, I saw 85% of it and loved 84% of it. And then, and then I, I'm sure there was a joke that just fell flat, but, and it was kind of Deadpool without Deadpool, but, um, but then I, I had to like up and leave and, and I never got back to it. So, so you were watching it in your home in my you were home, watching yeah, it no, in a cinema yeah. and got up and left it. I did not watch it in the cinema. No, I, it was, it, like, was, oh, it was home. Forgot to go get groceries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why, why do you ask? So as, as you know, and as I've talked about many times on the podcast, we have Saturday night movie night yes. in our house yeah. and we, we make pizza. I did make a veggie haggis pizza with mm. sharp cheddar. Mm. Rather, rather delicious. Rather delicious. Oh, quickly, quickly. 
Is this, so let's put a pin in that. Uh-huh. Is it, very is it, quickly. Is, it a, uh-huh. is that a sharp cheddar and moots combination or just, just straight up sharp cheddar? What's moots? Mozzarella. Oh, mots. Mots no, no, no. for moots. us moots. overseas. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no mots in sight. I actually don't tend to use mots on my pizza. So mots is the applesauce. That's very different. <laughs> it is the applesauce. You are correct on that one. I'm glad you don't use but. applesauce on your pizza because that would be disgusting. <laughs> I save that for my latkes. Um, yeah, no, just straight up sharp cheddar, three-year-aged sharp cheddar uh, on a just a very light red base. Don't want to go too crazy with the red base. Just a light red base. Okay, okay. Then with the crumbled veggie haggis over that, mm-hmm. then some... Some red onion, if that's what I've got in the house. Okay. White onion, if that's what I've got in okay. the house. Okay. And then the sharp cheddar over that, boom, into the, the hot grill. And uh, four minutes later, magic has happened. And with the onions, are you cooking them before or are you letting the oven do the work? Just let the grill. Just let the grill take, take charge of that. Now, there are other pizzas that I make that does rely on caramelized yeah, onions. Yeah, but that was, this, that was this is my not, question. Okay. Yeah, this is not one of them. This is just a nice, fresh bite of a raw... It's really just kind of warmed through at that point. It hasn't really... certainly hasn't caramelized. Started to soften Oh, but it's softened. Bit. It's softened a bit. Okay. Indeed. Okay. Indeed. All right, so... So, real, real tasty. Yeah. So... Yeah, free guy. So, so, in that world, we had free guy as the movie of choice. Mm. And and I have to say, it, it is such a delightful conceit that uh, a non-playable you know playable character within a video game mm. would take on this, this life of his own. And it, I, I thought that was well worth exploring. And to be honest, it made me think of The Truman Show. Right, and Tamara and I ah. looked at each other several times during the, the the playing of the movie, and kind of gave a, a Truman Show wink yeah, to 100%, one another. Yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Right, right. Uh, which actually had me thinking: Have you seen Ed TV, which I think came uh, out around the same time as Truman Show? Yeah, it. You know, I I did see that, and I remember approaching the viewing of that the same way one would approach the listening of Coldplay back when Coldplay first became popular. It felt they felt like Radiohead Light. And I feel mm. as if Ed T V was kind of Radiohead Light, but still mm. enjoyable enjoyable overall. Never seen Ed T V. All right. Yeah. Just never really landed in front of me. Okay. Truman Show, on the other hand, I have seen <laughs> Lots of times, oh, lots of Fantastic times. Fantastic movie. Yep. <laughs> and so, so obviously, on one level, you've got the the self awareness, the rising self awareness mm-hmm. of of the character, guy and free guy, a Truman and the Truman Show, and and it's that kind of coming to terms. But I thought what was interesting about Free Guy was the way it was incorporating modern technology to tell an established story. And the way, you know, the way current technology and obviously our our love of video games and how many of us have, 
you know, I, I think the kids call it a video game player in the house. And, and, it, it, and it made it's me... It's called a console, Jason. A video I, game I, I, player. That doesn't sound right. That uh, doesn't sound... I think video game player uh, is uh, is what we have. Right, you had a record player, right? Yeah. You had a CD player. Yeah. This is just a video game yeah. player. Yeah, questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com <laughs> if you want to correct Jason here because it is a console. And then there are people... You didn't have a, ra- you didn't have a radio player? Listen, you have, you've got two things. You've got a computer where you're going to do keyboard and mouse... And, and some crazy people like that way of playing, or you've got consoles that have a control yeah. paddle, which is the more, in my opinion, the more natural way to uh, connect to a video game. But it's not a, f- a fucking, what did you call it? I think you're talking a computer game player and a video game player. Those are two remarkably different things. Uh, do you remarkably. do that in your office room? Like when you play this? <laughs> <laughs> Coming to you live from my office room right now. So, but then I, then in thinking, you know, looking at Truman Show, mm-hmm. right? And the, the ubiquity of cameras mm-hmm. and, and thinking as we had camcorders in our homes and camcorders gave way to our phones having cameras mm-hmm. on them. Mm-hmm. And now here we are inside video games and so i i liked that evolving technology from one into the other and and so i think quite clearly all of that had me thinking about this week's interview and so Mm. i'm going to circle back and allow you to unpin where i pinned you on your build-up that you're always looking for ways to to be the master of of segues or just com- comparative thought. I like that. I like that. Well Transitions, done. introductions. <laughs> Still reeling from being called nefarious in the last intro, but that's by the by. That's neither here nor there. That's whiskey under the bridge, uh, as they oh, say. Oh, I like that whiskey under the bridge. So, so back to my <laughs> previous point of of always trying to deliver to people what what we all know as that traditional production of whiskey and everybody's own processes towards that, whether it is the distiller or the blender or the bottler or, or what have you, right? And now having said that, and we mentioned it in today's episode, our second ever episode was with Brian Davis, of Lost Spirits, who, who who produced early on. He produced whiskey with unusual sources of peat. He would, um, he would ferment a wash. He would distill it in a still that sat outside that was shaped like a massive dragon. And, mm-hmm. and that was in Monterey, California. And then he moved down to, to L.A. And he had his sort of, his whiskey-slash-rum lab where he would... He, he would produce a spirit and he would just include bits and bobs of oak that he would find around into this accelerator that, that would accelerate the maturation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting that we've always been the champion of tradition. Meanwhile, our second episode was, was the antithesis of tradition. And we brought that up in today's episode with, with both Stu and Martin at Bespoken. And mm-hmm. and you, people will hear it early on, because because Stu does a very good job where 
where he takes this word of accelerated maturation and he says, this isn't accelerated maturation, it is craft maturation. And some people might say, well, you're just, you know, you're just trying to fancy up this, this process. But as you go on and you start listening to the way Martin talks about collecting the data, and is they're not, what I really liked about this, and people will hear it, they're not just accelerating the maturation of a product to get a product out to market as quickly as possible. That, that is uh, a result of the process. But they're really trying to pinpoint flavor through this process and they can change up the procedures. And, and so I really like their approach. Their approach in a way is almost more traditional when it comes to the accelerated maturation in that uh, a traditional producer would produce a distillate and he or she would put that spirit into a bourbon barrel, into a sherry cask, into a Madeira cask, and then marry at the end, you know, they'd pinpoint flavors through casks to come up with a product and, and rather they're doing it differently, albeit with, with the hopes of that same result, just via a different process. And I, I really enjoyed that clarification through the conversation we had with these guys. Well, and I think there's a, there's a couple of aspects in play here. And I, and I think this, the juxtaposition of this episode with our first episode of season six <laughs> uh-huh. is going to be absolutely tremendous. And not just because of the conversation we were having with John Campbell and how John Campbell talked us through the traditional Scottish exercise, <laughs> for want of a better term, but also the anonymous uh, letter that we, that we read from mm-hmm. our, our industry friend, where it's that sense of how much of this process are you allowed to touch? Yeah. Uh, and, and in that, that letter, that missive, that email that we covered, I, I thought the point was made beautifully that you can work your mash, you can work your wash, you can work your stills, but when it goes into cask, Leave it alone. Yeah. Just let it do its job. Yeah. Now with with Stu and Martin at Bespoken, there's this sense of a process that is always hands-on. It's the creation mm. of a product from the very first steps. Yeah. Yep. And and one of the things that that I brought up in the interview was and 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 again I, I reference the listeners of this podcast. We want to get geeky, we want to get nerdy, we want to learn as much as we possibly can about the science of the yeast and the science of the still and the cut points and how does one condense and what does that bring to the yeah. party. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we also want to know how wood breaks down. And, and that was part of, of Brian's research mm-hmm. back in the day as well. And yet there's a part of us that is still hesitant to give wholeheartedly to technology, 
to non-traditional practices. And and that's, you know, on, on one hand, the reason I bring up Truman and, and Free Guy is there there is a natural evolution of technology that happens around us day in and day out if we don't think the so-called traditional whiskey industry is up to speed with the latest breakthroughs in technology in their industry we are misleading ourselves right they most definitely are up to date yeah on the face of it, however, we still get to to tell stories, make those presentations of farm distilleries like mm-hmm. like uh, John and, and David with Loch Lee over there, right? And it's a connection to the land and how close is the barley being farmed to the distillery? How, how little is it traveling to come into the process? And my absolute takeaway, and I've used it in multiple interviews since this one, is what Stu said about there are more consumers out there than we can wrap our heads around. Yep. And and I and I thought that was so telling. And so I'm I'm very pleased that we're presenting Stu and Martin from Bespoken today. And they're able to tell their story and they're able to present their side of this vast industry of ours. Yeah, yeah, I, I I want us all to go into this interview with an open mind. And and that I know I tried to do that as best I could, go into it with an open mind and you know, you, you at one point had had talked about, you know, being a proud Scot, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. and doing things mm-hmm. with tradition and and so on and so forth, but you know the the fact of the matter is we we tasted some of their whiskeys through the process uh, of the conversation and beforehand, and and what they're making is 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 tasty whiskey. There, there's no doubt about it, and and so I, I hope people go into this with an open mind, be willing to hear them out. What they're trying to do is not necessarily a replacement to what has been long established over these many hundreds of years. Rather, it's you know, back to what Chris Udy often says, right? It's it's just another color in the palette. It's 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 additional mm. flavors to the to the bouquet of of flowers that that whiskey offers up, and it it's not going to replace tradition. It's going to be a bolt on to what we know as whiskey production writ large. And and on top of that, it's purposeful. Yeah, and it's. Yeah. It's that sense from from the anonymous email in episode one that two people here have a vision for something they want to produce. Mm-hmm. And that might look radically different from what many of us know as tradition, but it doesn't make it any less worthy. Yeah, and, exactly. And there's no arguing with the level of knowledge Martin has built up in his lab. Mm-hmm. Right? As a scientist, he knows this inside out and back to front. And so the production becomes incredibly purposeful. And I think that's worth bearing in mind. I think that's a good place to leave it. Let's hand it over to Martin, Stu, me, and you. 
Martin, Stu, thank you both so much for joining us on One Nation Under Whiskey. We're really happy to have you. The way that I found out about Bespoken, uh, it was actually through a live event. I was at the Whiskies of the World in San Jose, and I was working the Impex tables. So our, our import company is, is located out of San Francisco, and so we had a, you know just a row of tables there. And I was, I was working the tables, and our... Uh, our national slash single cask, you know, private single cask guy, Elijah Ammon, came to me and he said, do you have a second? I said, yeah, sure. I said, do you want to step away from the table? The answer is always yes. If someone asks you, do you want to step away from the table? You say yes. So I said yes. So he brings me over to the bespoken table and, um, and he said, I don't want to say anything but have you heard of Bespoken? I said, no, I haven't heard of Bespoken before. I said, I'm not going to tell you anything. Just ask to taste their light whiskey. Now, both Jason and I are, are, are light whiskey fans and have been for a while. We, we started bottling light whiskey in 2013, 2014, and just fell in, in love with the spirit back then. Anyway, I got to tasting the light whiskey, and I said, that's pretty damn good. And uh, he said, now, now give the rye a go. And I said, okay, I'll give the rye a go. And I said, this is similarly pretty damn good. I like this a lot. <laughs> and then I got talking to your ambassador there. I, I want to say his name was Blake. And he started going into your process of, of how you produce your spirits. And, and I, was, I was surprised. What I'll tell you is the, the second interview we, we ever conducted was with Brian Davis, uh, who's now in Las Vegas, but he was in California for a while, creating spirit, you know, basically doing accelerated maturation, much like yourselves. And, and, and Blake started going on telling us about the process, and I found it quite interesting. And so with all of this setup, I wonder <laughs> if, if you both can, can tell us a little bit about Bespoken Spirits, and then I want to get into the process part of it, and also some philosophical things as well. So if you, if you wouldn't mind, I'll, I'll hand it off. I'll let you guys fight over who wants to take this initial question. But let's talk about the, spart, the start of Bespoken. Do you want to go ahead? Yeah, I was going to. Whoever touches the nose first, I guess, gets to, 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 to go first. Let me just uh, start by just kind of clarifying and contrasting something with, with what you just said. Okay. Um, because, you know, obviously there are companies like the company you mentioned that came before us that, that you know, that focused on accelerated maturation. Mm -hmm. And I want to just clarify that accelerated maturation isn't actually what we do. What okay. we do is, is, is craft maturation, which happens to be fast, and we'll come back to that in a second. But the, rat, the reason for it is that what we're trying to do is control the maturation process um, to get a precise result out of it. So to be able to tailor the process to get the aroma, color, and taste profile that we or you or our client wants. And mm. it's, it's that that we set out to do and, and built the company and the technology around. And there's three, ben we call it craft maturation. Okay. And there's three main benefits to it. One of it is the time frame, the very fast learning cycles, which means we can try lots of stuff and learn from it very quickly to kind of hone in on what works and what doesn't work and what people love and what people don't love. Mm to the precision control that lets us really design for a target result and make something that 
people will love and different things for different people because different people have different loves. And last but certainly not least, sustainability. Um, our process uses on the order of 97% less wood, 99% less energy, and at least 20% less water than traditional methods, largely because we have no angel share. And so it's about control, it's craft maturation, it's taking spirit, craft and creativity to new heights. It's not about acceleration, although acceleration is an important part that makes it so powerful. Okay. That, that, that definitely does clear it up and is, is a different story than what Brian Davis is or, or was doing. I, I know he, he moved his facilities to, to Las Vegas. I don't know what he's doing now. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, thank you for that. Sure. Now, you know, in terms of, of kind of the, uh, the whiskey spark, you know, Martin and I are both, I describe us as uh, recovering Silicon Valley engineers. <laughs> After spending our careers at a variety of different startups, um, working on technologies and, and understanding, you know, launching new businesses and, and process control and data science and material science and all these things, we reached a point where we thought, wouldn't it be fun to apply everything we've learned and all of our experiences to something we're a little bit more passionate about than, you know, maybe the next uh, iPhone app or, or something like that. Yeah. And uh, Martin and I had, had first uh, gotten to know each other about 15 years ago. We worked at a, uh, a sustainably oriented company, a fuel cell company called Bloom Energy. And uh, about, it was about four years ago that Martin came to me with really the idea behind Bespoken. And you know, I don't want to steal his thunder, but the way he described it to me was he was in a wine and whiskey club. And he was you know, getting frustrated in that club that you know, to get anything great, he either had to spend a lot of money or buy something years in advance. And as the material scientist in that club, people kept expecting him to explain why that was. Why was a, a 15-year-old scotch worth so much more than a 10-year-old scotch, mm-hmm. uh, as an example? And he couldn't scientifically explain it. So he started reading and tinkering and inventing. And ultimately, he invented the technology behind Bespoken, which was about taking control of this maturation process for the reasons I said before. So let me, let me stop there and really give Martin a chance to, uh, to elaborate for you. Cheers. It was really about the learning cycles, right? It's something that as an engineer, right, if there's something you learn over 25 years is, right, if you want to make any progress, it's all about how fast you can learn. Right, mm-hmm. and it's even just just such a simple concept, right? But the but the basic idea of of trying to understand or figuring out what is really going on in maturation of spirits, mm-hmm. right? I knew there's no way we're gonna figure this out, right? If it takes us even a year or five, I'm not even talking about five years or ten years, right? There's no way that you can run all these experiments and get all these learning cycles. That's why I call an industry like this usually it's an experience-driven industry. Right? You do things because you have an experience. You don't really not really know why, but it was probably Paul who did it before you. right? And that's why we're using the same char and the same wood supplier. Well, it was all about really trying to figure out what is really going on in the, in the, in the maturation process. And for that, uh, we knew, I knew that we needed, we needed to be faster than that. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and there was a group, especially in Portugal, that was working on brandies. And then uh, you mentioned uh, Lost Spirits, right? the work that they have done. right? And that kind of told me, wow, right? if somebody thinks they can do this, and like the Portuguese group was doing it, they had like a, th- a three-month learning cycle. Right? I figured mm-hmm. out if we pulled, pulled together some smart people, maybe we can do it even faster. 
and then from those learning cycles right you can make you can make it we've done ten thousands of, of bourbons right by now different bourbon recipes right and by doing mm. that you 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 start to really learn and understand what is really going on right what are the critical uh, things that is happening when you treat the woods and, and then how it reacts with the with the spirit and 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 what what kind of a starting spirit do you need to get to a, to get to an end end, end product but it is a, such a complicated subject because you have so much chemistry going on right so that we also a lot of what we do is 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 a data science to kind of trying to make sense from the results that we are getting because it's just so complex and there's so many variables right at least yeah. my 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 human brain could never could never process all the data <laughs> right so so we are also at a good time in history where we have the the computer power available Right, that with mm -hmm. those every experiment that we are making is probably generating somewhere around 200, 300 data points, right? And then we use uh, oh. artificial intelligence, etc., right, to try to make sense with all the different process parameters that we have. How does that impact the chemical fingerprint and therefore also the taste, aroma, and the color of the spirit? I probably went too much into detail, but sorry. <laughs> no, no, not no, in the slightest, Martin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you'll, you'll really enjoy our listenership. They are geeky and nerdy and uh, really want to delve in. And so one of my questions uh, for you was you came to this with some frustration about getting at the heart of maturation. Mm -hmm. In conducting the science, what did you discover about maturation? What is happening in there over these tens and fifteens of years, uh, as Stu was mentioning a moment ago? Sort of it we probably won't even tell people when it's happening, right? Because it's amazing how much experience and how much how much myths are out there, right? And people mm -hmm. talk about how important the angel share is for a certain thing, right? It makes it all smooth, etc. And 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 then you can actually start making those making those experiments, right? And to see how does this really impact, right? The 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 the, the profile of the spirit, but a lot and it's. I wouldn't say that people are not that people didn't know this before we did it, right? So a lot has to do with the wood treatment. Right, and this mm -hmm. was one of the biggest, the first challenges I went into. I said, okay, so people are using a char number three, right? So I reached out to to, to a couple of different uh, coopers, right, and I said, yeah, I would like to have char number three, right? So I get the wood, right, and all the, all the barrels, and I look at them, and oh my god, they all look different. Right, and I said, okay, so let's try a toast, right? So I, I purchased medium toast, right? Didn't know what to start with, so I said, let's do medium, right? And again, mm -hmm. again, I get three different, three different uh, uh, woods for three different toasted wood, and they look all different. And like, man, and if there's anything that I learned as a material <laughs> scientist, right, since uh, since out of out of college, was that if anything looks different, right? As a material, there's a good chance it's going to be different, right? So the first mm. thing was, oh, my God, right? The wood treatment, what is a medium toast, right? Everybody everybody does it differently. And that was one of the first things we said, okay, if we really want to understand what is happening, we need to be able to control the starting materials, right? The raw materials. And then 
And once I started talking to people from the industry, you get this back, oh, it's a natural element, right? You can't really control it. And that's that's one reason why we use something that we call a microstave, which is sort of just mm. about the size of my pinky, right? And we control the wood on that level. Controlling means we characterize it, we measure uh, physical and chemical properties of the wood down to that level so that we can kind of make sure that every time we use a certain uh, uh, wood as a starting material that it is constantly the same to Stu's point right being able to control the process to make sure that not to use an, an analogy to the barrels right that not every barrel is different right from another barrel right which mm-hmm. now is which now a lot of people including you guys make single cast barrels right because it's different <laughs> from the other and it's so much better but not sure anybody really knows so we knew that if we want to an- understand what is happening we need to be able to control the starting materials so that's sort of sort of obvious from and from a process engineering point but that was super challenging and that's why we do all the wood treatments in house Right, and the way we control whether it's the toasting, whether it's the charring, we use different methods, and and because it's also on a different scale, we can do things that are just really, really hard to do with the barrel from a control point of view. And the so, neat thing is, when you look at all the variables, the the different source spirits we can start with, the different mixes and combinations and ratios of these micro staves that we can handcraft and blend together for our recipe, and then the environmentals temperature, pressure, agitation rate, atmosphere, humidity, etc. We've got close to 20 billion different different recipes that we can create. Yeah. And that's wow. what allows us to hone in on very, you know, precise results and give the customers what they want. That's a big number. It's a very big number. Ooh, too much so. for my brain. That's why we need the, the data science. <laughs> and it's, it's also, it's, it's amazing what it lets us do. I'll, I'll show you an example. I know we're not going to taste these products, but I'm going to hold up Two of, our, two of our products, this is our, what we call our original batch, which is a, a whiskey mm-hmm. distilled from a bourbon mash. And this is what we call our special batch, which is also a whiskey distilled from a bourbon mash. This one is a bourbon, right? Mm-hmm. Vanilla, caramel, you can see dark color, right? Yeah. This mm-hmm. one is a Japanese-style whiskey. It's light, it's floral, it's aromatic. Uh, These two products could not be any more different on the spectrum of aroma, yeah. color, and taste. They're both multiple award winners in prestigious competitions, by the way. Mm-hmm. But what makes it really exciting is that both of these products started out as exactly the same white spirit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the only difference yeah. between this bourbon, this award-winning bourbon, and this award-winning Japanese-style whiskey is a different recipe, meaning that combination of, of wood and wood treatment and environmental controls, and then three days in our machine. Plus, obviously, a lot of experiments to, to hone in on what was the, the recipe that really you know, would win the day. So is the grain the same in, in both and just the yeah. wood treatments? Is it, wow, that's... So I'm, I'm actually sipping on your special batch oh, right now. Oh, you have it? Oh, nice. Yes, and, you know, I, I had a question about barrels I, I wanted to to get back to, and hopefully I'll remember to do that. But I wanted to make a comment about something I found that's been uniform through the three that I've tasted so far, which is your light whiskey, your rye, and now your, and now your special batch. Actually, I did have a sip of the, of the bourbon as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I found is in contrast to a traditionally aged product, this has a rounder sense of flavor. And, and by that, I mean, 
spirits like cognac or or even I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mendocino spirits in California. You know, all of these are distilling spirit through an alembic still, and that alembic still distillate has this roundness, this softness to the overall delivery of flavor, where where something that's been distilled through, say, traditional copper pot or a continuous column still has more of a, a, a vibrant flavor structure that kind of goes like this. This is soft and round and approachable. And I'm curious where you think that's coming from, you know, Martin, in, in, in the thousands of data points you've collected. Is that something you've targeted and that's the style that you're going for? Or is it an evolution? I'm enjoying how it's tasting. I'm just curious where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure anybody has 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 phrased it the way that you were saying. But by the way, all these spirits were originally column distilled, right? Okay. And mm. then and then and then due to the due to the what we call our activator, right, where we where we combine the wood together together with the spirit, right, is where we where we we apply heat, we apply. We can apply pressure and things like this, right? And then we're kind of removing or eliminating some of the things that might contribute to what you call not as a round, not as a round uh, flavor, right, or, or profile. It's an interesting one because that one is, from a data point of view, it's really, really hard to capture that in 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 to measure it. Right, and this is one mm-hmm. of the challenges that we are having also with our to combine the the things that we can measure. And that's a continuous development that we are doing from from GCMS analysis right to LCMS analysis where you try to capture what we feel in the mouth to versus what we actually smell, and then to correlate mm-hmm. that with with, for instance, with the experience that you are having, right? And that one is really really hard at this point, right? To 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 subsidize. With the analytical methods that we're having but the beauty is by getting more and more data right mm-hmm. and then getting more and more tasting data right it will enable us to to figure out or oh, what is it right that joshua says it makes it so rounder the spirit versus yeah. versus a different spirit and and, and we were, there's still so much data for us to analyze and also, we, of course, we analyze also com, com, uh, competitor spirits right all the time. Whenever I go to a bar, I take two mils of it. I hope I hope that's legal. I take it home. <laughs> I haven't thought about that when I should mention this here on the call. But anyway, if I don't want to buy the whole bottle, right? Then and and we yeah, and we look at that chemically, right, from a chemical fingerprint. And then try to see where the differences are when customers give us a target, right? Same thing. But but I'm I'm glad you like you like all those spirits and that you kind of felt like they. And I'm actually also very excited about the special batch. And I believe you also had the straight bourbon, right? The the gray label. Yeah, we've got. Let me see. We've got the light whiskey, the special yep. batch whiskey, the straight bourbon. The original okay. batch whiskey oh, you and then your rye whiskey. Oh, right. <laughs> everything, but, everything but the rum. Everything but the rum. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. No. And the yeah, the original and 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 the special batches. What uh, Stu described. Right. They started both from MGP's uh, uh, high rye mesh bill. Right. And and uh, just like Stu said, they couldn't be they couldn't be any different. 
don't know if you if you if you if you agree. For sure, I definitely agree. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I think there's there's a a connection, but but I don't know if I feel the connection just because I was I was told where the mash bill comes from, and, and therefore you know. <laughs> Uh, the the witness has therefore been led. Um, that that part I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Jason, I had a, another question, I, I, but I didn't want to step on your toes here. I, I heard you said you had a question about barrels, and and I had a question about barrels. So I, I want to see if your question is my question. Okay, and 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 this is understanding that you're not using barrels, right? You, you're using the the this this micro stave. But while you were doing this research and finding, okay, their number three toast is different from their number three toast, or char, and their medium toast is different from their medium toast, did you find that it was due to subjectivity from the cooper or simply that it, it was something that they couldn't fully control? Now, I heard you, you say that mm -hmm. they couldn't necessarily control the consistency Mm -hmm. But I wonder if, if you know, Speyside Cooperage's number three char is different from Kelvin Cooperage's number three char, is different from Independence Dave's number three char. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it might be just that they these are their recipes, right, what they, based on the different methods they're also mm -hmm. using, right, mm -hmm. depending on how they char, whether they do it, whether they do it with an open flame. Right, or whether they use uh, propane uh, gas, right, to do it. But for us, because mm -hmm. for us it was super important to get a consistency, right, and yeah. and 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 we originally we didn't want to be in the business of, of actually making making wood ourselves or, or treating wood ourselves. So we so so we thought we can source it, but we also knew that a single source is going to be it's going to be a challenge. So that's why we went to different to different sources. And I'm not going to say that. Um, uh, I'm not going to blame anybody that one barrel is going to be different from another, but there are some studies, especially people from the wine industry. They have they have they have looked a lot. And there's a paper from UC Davis that kind of looks at the barrel from the top mm. to the bottom and looks at the uh, chemical composition. There was actually, I believe, it was a medium toasted barrel, and it's just it's just everywhere different, right? Because the heat exposure on the top was different than in the center as well as on the bottom. And and so so the variations are there, but but I'm sure that these coopers, if they do it all, every 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 time the same time, right? They will probably get the same treatment if the if the grain size, if the grain orientation, right, and things like this, right, mm. are constantly con constantly the same. But but we just did not see a way on how to do this on the barrel size to be really able to control it to the level that we saw we needed to control it to get a consistent sure. product that we need. Otherwise, we are not able right, to customize the aroma, color, and taste if every time we, we use it, it's different. Yeah, if I can just add on to that with my question is slightly different. In our, our last episode, and, and I love the echoes that we have in, in this episode with our, our previous one with, with John and um, uh, John and Ferguson. Yeah, David, David Ferguson, yeah. David, there you go, from Loch Lee, where they were talking about inconsistencies and they were talking about how you make that work given traditional Scottish techniques. And one of the things we'd asked them was, we've got this little bit of a, of a shortcut now on what percentage of flavour comes from a barrel, 
you know, slash in this instance comes from the wood, right? And and you had mentioned earlier, Martin, about some of those myths that get perpetuated without too much science happening behind them. And 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 so I'm just kind of curious. We we've started hearing this number seventy percent of a whiskey's flavor comes from the barrel, and, and you're already chuckling at that, right? Like. Like, I know that we need sometimes shortcuts for the consumer to get their mind where we need to get their mind. Mm -hmm. But do you have any sense of it, of 70 making sense? Is it too variable? When you're then working on on your recipes and techniques with your micro stave, Mm -hmm. and maybe you don't want to reveal, but... But what contribution is that making to the flavor, given that Stu just showed us clear new make spirit with two remarkably different products that come from that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it really depends on what flavors you're looking for, right? In in a in a in a spirit, right? Mm. I think I think it's sort of obvious that uh, caramel, right, or butterscotch. Right, so a lot of these vanilla, vanilla, a lot of the aldehydes, right? They're very, very clearly coming from the wood, right? So mm-hmm. this, there's there's close to zero of them in the in the starting spirit, right? And then there's another group from, that people called um, esters, right? That are that are mm-hmm. familiar that are, that are responsible for a lot of the things that people like, whether that's whether that's peach, whether that's banana, right? Isoamyl. Um, alcohol is responsible for that. That actually, you cannot get it out of the out of the wood, right? That has to mm. be in your starting spirit. So, so very often, if a, if a customer comes to us and, and they're looking for a specific profile, we first need to look at the actually the the starting spirit, which roughly half half of the time is fresh of the distill, uh, fresh fresh of the still, and in other in the other fifty percent, people actually come to us with something that is three years old, five years old, six years old. I think the oldest was a mm. nine-year-old whiskey, where they were looking to add a specific characteristic to the spirit, right? And then we have to look at that, right? How is it chemically composed, right? And can we actually achieve that end result if we don't have the starting, if we don't have the starting material in the spirit? So, but. To your point, and this is kind of what 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 drove us to focus on the maturation, right? That people said, "Oh my God, it's seventy, and somebody said eighty, and then somebody else said ninety percent." Right? And we said, "So how is it possible that there is so?" Because a lot of science went so. So I'm, I, w- I was born at Czech Republic, and actually in Pilsen, right? So I, I brew my own beer. Right, and a lot of science has gone into 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 fermentation. Right, people don't use, and at mm-hmm. least at least the brewers, right, they don't use just one yeast, right, because they know, oh my God, right, the yeast is so important, and mm-hmm. they probably have also a shorter learning cycle, so they can do that, right, mm-hmm. and then a lot, and, and of course a lot of science, even though some of those uh, stills might still look the same as they used to be, but there's a lot of science when they do how to how to optimize the stills, right, how to how how to perfectly engineer them, right, to, to, to be able to do good, 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 good cuts and everything and control what's coming out and throughput. And, but then on the maturation side, it was the interesting part of really, and this was what, right, really 60 or 80, 90% is coming from, is coming from the maturation part, right? Why has nobody focused on trying to understand, improve that process? 
and, and mm-hmm. that, that actually sparked the whole idea that yeah a lot a lot but it's really it really depends to your question it really depends what kind of a the color of course right 100 percent from the <laughs> from the, right from the from the barrel <laughs> right and then once you talk about the aromas right or the or the, or the taste right or the mouthfeel then you're kind of starting to see combinations, but there's still a group of them. But even even the ones, the esterification that I mentioned, right, is also mm-hmm. super super interesting. And we're actually working with universities. We're doing a lot of uh, science to really understand how are they really formed, right? Because so the starting material needs to be there, but 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 we are learning things that we are surprised that nobody has described before. Right, that actually help us to do these things within within a couple of days, rather than what is typical that it takes years. But and I don't know if we mentioned this or so the spirits that you were drinking. There somewhere around three to five days it takes us to make to make those spirits. Absolutely wild. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jason holds up dark liquid yeah, off yeah. camera. <laughs> Martin and Stu, you both mentioned this at some point during the conversation where you've got customers that come to you and say, I would basically, I would, I would like you to help create a spirit for us. And what I found intriguing was initially I, I assumed that you would say, okay, here, here's a mash bill we can work with and then we'll you know, we'll we'll work with our microstaves and in our in our uh, machinery, and we'll we'll create this product for you. But you'd said someone would come to you with aged spirit to then have you modify the aged spirit, and so I guess I guess we're we're back into the geeky part of it. But there is a customer <laughs> element to there is a customer element to it as well because you're creating spirits for clients. So I, I do want to touch on that. Yeah. But I wonder if there's if there are differences between creating a product from new make to final product three days later to creating or modifying a product that starts as a nine-year-old to three days later something else. Can you talk to that a bit? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And, and again, just to reiterate what you were just saying, you're right. Our, our, as a company, our, our platform, this, this technology and process that we've developed really allows us to support two businesses. Yeah. Right. One yeah. of our businesses is selling bespoken branded products, yep. of which you're you're, you're tasting, and, and uh, the second business is the business where we provide technology and services behind the scenes to other players in the industry, distillers, rectifiers, retailers, celebrities, you know, et cetera, who want to either create something completely different, mm-hmm. bridge the time and economics challenges or supply chain challenges of of you know new make versus versus older stuff. Um, or fix something that didn't come out the way they wanted when they sure. went through the, you know, the, the traditional methods and nature wasn't, wasn't kind to them. And so you know, we support both of those businesses, um, and uh, you know, they're both uh, you know, really, uh, really exciting businesses to be in. Okay, so let's, let's use a specific problem. And, 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 and if I'm overstepping here, please let me know. If, if there's stuff you don't want to talk about, please let me know. But let's say you have a client that comes to you with a product, a bourbon, and it's reached the point where it's not just oaky, it's astringent. And they've mm-hmm. got a lot of that. And they need it turned around so it's not like you're drinking burnt popsicle sticks. Mm-hmm. Can you fix 
a can you fix anything? Can you fix something like that? Ooh, interesting. Nobody's ever come to us with something where they where they had something okay. overaged. Yeah. Right? Which mm. is probably what you're what you're what you're talking about. Right? Yeah. Usually and that maybe it's because you're selling that for a lot of money these days and some people don't even <laughs> will ever open those bottles to check how it actually tastes because it's so mm. valuable. But <laughs> we've not had so so far we've I, I don't recall a single customer who came to us, like, let's say, with an 18-year-old or whatever, old bourbon, right, and who kind of wanted to fix it to, to taste like a 12-year-old, right? That has not been that has not been a challenge that was, that was posed to us. Usually, it's the other way around. They have a three-year-old product, and they wanted to taste it like a five, six, seven, sure. eight. Even those numbers are so, so arbitrary, right, because... Like, and people always ask me, "Can you make a seven-year-old uh, bourbon for us? Uh, wh 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 what is that? Right? Can you define that? Because there's no such thing. Right? Every seven-year-old bourbon tastes differently. Right? We do have, we do have some. Of course, we do have some chemicals that we are looking for, so we can actually predict pretty well on how old the spirit is when we when we receive it. When it happens again and again, that people send oh, us something, they yeah. tell us it's nine years old and we tell them, no way, this is nine years old. It looks more like a three-year-old. And then they go back and they say, oh, you're right. We sent you the wrong sample. <laughs> but it's actually yeah. pretty, pretty, pretty impressive. <laughs> pretty, yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah. But, but, so, so, yeah, so, they, so they, usually they want purpose. us to, they usually want us to make it, to make it, uh, yeah, to be able to, to use something that is two years old or three years old oh, okay. and be able to kind of, Kind of elevated to the level that people would more expect from, from and from 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 from, from, from an older spirit. And sometimes okay. it's also very specific. Sometimes somebody you know, we want some leathery notes, right? Can you do that for mm. us? Right. So very. Some sometimes I'm I'm amazed how specific it is, and and not mm. not everybody in our team has the palate, right, to even be able to describe what it is. So we work a lot with industry people out there right, to quantify what is leathery right how can we even and then to correlate it what what what, what we're actually measuring in the lab then right to be able like if somebody says i want more vanilla right to me when vanilla reaches like 60 ppm in the spirit right i think it's pretty uh, pretty high in vanilla for somebody else he's gonna say vanilla what is there vanilla in there i can't i can't taste it right? because we're all so different right so that that's yeah. part of the challenge that we're having right by being able to continue because we need to kind of connect the data right with the with with the experience of the of the customer the consumer and so you have to, for each of our customers, consumer, you kind of have to, you kind of have to readjust on on what what they are tasting. And on the services side of the business, we've seen some pretty wild and diverse ranges of, of of products. From the again, nature wasn't kind. This came out of a barrel at five years. You know, fix it. You know, give me the vanilla notes I was looking for or whatnot. To um, I wish I made more. I have a wildly successful product that I made <laughs> you know five years ago. I sold out like that. Yeah. I don't want to wait another five years. Help me bridge that gap, yeah, right? Yeah, to yep. ready-to-drink cocktails, where the company may have a, a, a well-known spirit brand that they want to make ready-to-drink cocktails out of, but they don't want to use their premium-age stuff in the ready-to-drink cocktail, but they want it to taste like their premium-age stuff, right? Um, and then sure. again, the, 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 the most common scenario is really kind of a simple financial arbitrage, right? How do I get a product to market better, faster, cheaper, especially in today's day and age where there's supply constraints? Where yeah. for a lot of rectifiers that want to get 
aged spirit right now, it's not there. They can't purchase mm-hmm. it if they want to. So mm-hmm. those are some of the scenarios that we come. So we even saw you know, a scenario where we did some work for a, a beer company that realized that with the pandemic, they were having all this excess or expired beer that they had to pay people to take back and destroy. And why not distill it into a whiskey and work yeah. with us to turn it into a, uh, a good whiskey as opposed to a, uh, a beer bin, for, uh, for lack of a, <laughs> a better word. So lots of different scenarios. And again, this, this core process and technology really allows us to address a lot of very compelling value propositions for these, uh, these customers. Yeah, and due to the learning cycles, you don't like it? Okay, we'll be back next week with another set of 20 samples. And you still don't like it? We'll be back next week. Right, and then and then you and then you hone it in. It was for me really, really mind blowing after all these years in high tech, right, where we had so long learning cycles, and we tried to do something two percent faster and and three percent faster or five percent faster, and then to have a learning cycle that is like thousands of times faster. This just was was a no brainer for me to 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 give it a try. It, and it it is a crazy notion to to have that many data points associated with something that's thought of as so traditional. And and it's, you know, I'm kind of piggybacking on the, the question asked about the barrel, where we've got it, and, and I, I already said about the listeners of this podcast, where they're uber geeky, they're nerdy, they want to get at the heart of the science that's going into their whiskey. And they're comfortable not knowing some of the processes. We brought up the, the cast maturation there. When you then start to talk about processes, clearly like the ones that we're talking about in today's episode, there's some hesitancy there with the, you know, tradition either goes out the window or becomes so important that it puts the brakes on people. And so I'm, I'm curious, given that you're living this day in and day out and you're so wonderfully knowledgeable on the science of this, what do you think the consumer needs to hear? That, that consumer who wants to get nerdy and geeky, but also wants her to be tradition and multi-year maturation here. What's your response to that consumer and, and, and how can you bring them into the fold? Because you clearly have. You're, you seem like you're doing rather well. Um, so you're clearly being successful. How are you doing it? Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a great question, Jason. And obviously at the end of Cheers. the day, the taste is what matters most, right? And that, we always you know, put it in your lips and, and you know, tell us what you think. But the first thing to realize is there is no one consumer, right? The market is so massive and there's so many consumers who are so open-minded or care about sustainability or don't want to drink what their daddy or their grandpa drank um, that mm-hmm. you know, is just massive. There will mm-hmm. always be some segment of the market that is a little bit more stuck in tradition, religious. Um, that's not our core market, and we're not going to sell them on new religion. The only way we're going to get to them is, is by taste. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I think is very important to, to highlight, and this is why right off the bat I, I, I clarified the distinction between what we do and the, those people that are all about accelerated aging, is that our process, our craft maturation, is very much about craft and creativity. And it's mm-hmm. taking it to new heights. And it allows us to create whole new vectors for what you can do with craft and creativity that you couldn't do before. 
So it's just kind of a, a new wave of this. And it's, it's incredibly traditional as well in that we use all the same elements that go in traditional barrel aging, nothing addition, no additives, no chemicals. We've just reimagined sure. the process, right? And that gives us the ability to do all of these, you know, these really neat things with it. And so I always like, I, I tend to equate it to, to digital animation, right? Yes, it's not the old hand-drawn animation, but it's unlocked so much more that we can do with animation that you know, it, you know, the, the, the industry and, and the, the, everybody embraced it. And I think that's kind of the, the curve we're on. So whether it's akin to digital animation or electric cars or plant-based meats, I think that uh, you know, it's one of those markets that you, you grow in over time. You don't have to address everybody right off the bat. Some people will never come around, but most people are really open and receptive to the creativity to the story, to the sustainability, and most importantly, to the, the, the quality of what we, uh, we've been able to produce. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's a, a crack in response, Stu, and, and I really wanted to give you that opportunity to say that out loud because, I, and I'm speaking for myself here, obviously, as a proud Scotsman, but I'm, I'm sitting here and, and I'm, I'm digging the science, as is Joshua. You know, we're just digging the science, digging the science, and then we get to a three to five day turnaround and I go, whoa, now wait a second. Now for us in Scotland, we've been doing it like this for so long, you know? And so I, I love the fact that you get to say it's taste, it's flavor. Put it in your mouth. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. We all move on. Consumer is a big thing. And, and in addition to that, I like the fact that you say there are multiple consumers here. They're not all, they're not all old white-haired guys like you, Jason. Uh, they're not all proud Scotsmen. They they are willing to see it, and so I I like the corollary to other industries because I was thinking earlier while Martin was talking, if this was about anything other than whiskey, I would be so gung ho, like absolutely yes, forward yes, and it's whiskey, and I'm protective, and I'm traditional. And I'm hesitant. And so I love, I really do, Stu. I really enjoyed what you said there. And I think you've spoken to the market very well. Um, and yeah, shit, I'm going to put a bespoken bottle on my shelf. I'm going to do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> going to be a brave boy. We, we will get the white-haired, the white-haired Scots I mean, eventually. Just, we don't have to get them right away. We can yeah. give them time. Key demographics, Stu. Key demographics. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really tight Scotsmen will not pay the bills. Like that's not going to happen. <laughs> Cheap as chips we are. Um, and so I was. And so again, I wanted to give you the floor. And so for the core range that we've got in front of us here, who are who are you seeing the, the consumer being there? What's what's that bespoken drinker looking like? Yeah, I mean, and again, that's the one of the other benefits of our technology is not only can we go deep, we can go wide. Right? Mm. We've created a portfolio of products. And, and part of the reason for that is we really do want to make whiskey and spirits more approachable to people, mm. not just to the elite you know, experience, but to the curious, to the inquisitive, to the novices, to the underrepresented demographics you know, in, in terms of buyers. And we feel that by giving them a portfolio of different tastes and flavors and aromas as opposed to one thing that you're supposed to like because you know, the white-haired Scotsman likes it, is a, you know, is, is, is a good way to, to do that. So mm-hmm. what's neat about our portfolio is we always say, I don't know which product is going to be your favorite, but I know that within my portfolio, there's going to be one that you're going to like, whether you gravitate to the, the sweeter, 
or the spicier or the mm. neater or the heavier. There's something that we, we can offer there. And that's an important part of, I think, what makes you know, Bespoken unique. Mm-hmm. I had a question, and, and please, <laughs> without, giving, without giving away trade secrets, you know, one of the things that, that intrigued me, and, and I, I just poured, where was it? Crap, was it? Oh, here it is, the um, original batch whiskey. So I just poured that, and I'm tasting it. And my initial thought was, it's spicy, it's rich, it's got a, a, a big, oaky backbone to it. it. It's got such a presence to it. And it reminded me, in a way, to some of the Elijah Craig 12-year-old, back when Elijah Craig held a 12-year-old age statement on it. Just that spiciness, that richness. And without giving away trade secrets, what's happening across a three- to five-day period, maybe just from a science perspective, that is allowing that to happen in such a, such a unique way? And I, I understand you've got secrets that, that, that you want to hold close to the vest, so I'm not looking for secrets. I'm, I'm yeah. looking for what you tell the consumer when they ask that question to you. If I answer, it's probably going to be too geeky and too too scientific. Nothing's so maybe maybe maybe, maybe Stu should answer too. But <laughs> but but it starts again with the wood, right? The barrel was never really meant, right, to add any add any flavor, right? It was always meant to be for transportation, right, to get it around. And actually, I hate barrels on one hand, right, because they're so clunky, they're so heavy. But when you want to move them. Mm. They're amazing, right? Because <laughs> you can flip them over and you can move them, so it makes it makes so much sense, right? To when you when you used to transport them on ships, and a single person can just roll them wherever you want to have them, and you and then you can mm-hmm. flip them back on after you did it a couple of times. So it's amazing, right? But they were never meant to yeah. be, right? The eighty ninety percent contributor of the of the aroma <laughs> taste and color right of the spirit and so so because we're using these microstaves right and the way we're treating them and the way we we can treat them because they are that size and we can treat them from all kinds of different sides the efficiency of the extraction of what is happening in the barrel that just takes very very long right because the spirit needs to sieve in and then it also sees if you have a charred barrel, right? There's only the so-called red layer, which is which has been impacted by the heat, sure. which is only a couple of hundred microns. I have no idea what that in inches is, right? Very very tiny, right? It was actually mm-hmm. impacted by the by the heat treatment. So because because we treat the wood and we can treat the entire wood, and and, and that's why we are so efficient on the wood, and we can use so much less wood, and therefore have to take down so much less trees. Right, is because we use the entire volume of the barrel, right, and then we optimize mm. the process in a way that we can get everything out mm. of the wood, right, that we need to get within actually the first two thirds of the entire maturation process, and then and then it's about certain reactions that are taking place. Where right? we talked about esterification, right, and so so we figured out a process, a way of of to accelerate those, and a lot helps us with temperature. And people know this, right? Temperature, everybody knows, right? And in the rickhouse, top barrel is going to be so different from your bottom barrel, right? On extraction, but especially mm-hmm. also on the chemical reactions that are happening. And these chemical reactions, have uh, the dependency is exponential, right? So you increase a little bit temperature, it actually has a huge impact. 
So that's why uh, we operate our, our activated elevated temperatures where that helps us mm -hmm. with the acceleration of those of those reactions to happen. What people think takes years, but it can happen within days. Don't, don't forget about mm. the uh, the atmosphere, the ability to replicate the humidity of Texas or, uh, or I'm sorry, or, or, of Kentucky or the uh, you know the salinity of of, of Scottish air mm. um, or things like that is also kind of an element that we could we could take control of. Um, you know, Martin gave you kind of the tech example. The, the, the dumbed down example I always like to give is: Are you familiar with that ice cream Dippin' Dots? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? Like if you want to make a banana split out of Dippin' Dots, you take some chocolate dots and some vanilla dots and some banana dots, and you kind of you craft what you want the outcome to be. And that's kind of like what we're doing with these microstaves, right? Because each one's so small, each one brings only what we want to the equation, none of what we don't want. And when we're setting out to do a recipe, we're very selectively choosing these microstave mixtures. We might, for one recipe, use all American oak. For another recipe, we might mix some American oak with some French oak with some cherry. And then within the American oak, we might mix some category one with some category two with some category three, or use only category two, which replicates the, the middle of the stave as opposed to the top or the bottom. And it's, it's this, this literal handcrafting process of creating these blends of the wood that is really the cornerstone of what we do. And it's kind of funny because a lot of times people say, well, your process is faster. It must be cheaper. Right? It must be easier. <laughs> right? And the reality is it's harder. It's more work. It's more complex mm -hmm. to take control of maturation. It happens to be faster, but it's actually so much more painstaking, handcrafted, artisanal sure. work that we do. Huh. to figure out these recipes. And then because we can learn from them, we could document what each recipe does, which makes future recipe design a little bit easier. Well, and I think systems coalesce around traditions, and that's what ultimately brings down prices, right? The, the, the fact that you're in a non-traditional world uh, is blazing a new trail that is going to involve new costs for you. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's a worthwhile point. Uh, I, I'm conscious of your time. I know we asked for an hour of it. If I, if I could squeeze in one question here, and then we've got one question that we ask of everybody to wrap up, and then we'll be we'll be good. Is that okay for you, gentlemen? Sure. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I'm thoroughly enjoying the conversation. Same. So, Mark Watt is a is a dear dear friend of ours in Campbelltown, uh, over in Scotland. And, and way back, you know, this, this is now the start of our sixth season of the podcast, way back in the very beginning of the first season, he posed a question that I think about literally every day. He said, if whiskey didn't contain alcohol, would anybody drink it? And, and so we spend so much time waxing lyrical about the flavours that are presented in whiskey, and we go in search of those. But you also can't turn up your nose at the alcohol in it. And I do love the strengths of this core Strength line sitting in front of me, uh, the 45, the 47 and the 50s, spot on. Um, and so my, my question is, is given your expertise and given your knowledge, could we have a 0% alcohol whiskey you're both smiling at me, just for the benefit of the listeners. You're both smiling at me. Um, could, could we have a 0% whiskey that delivered all the flavors that we all love? You're looking for a dry January product, Jason? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> you, know, you know, if they're taking on clients, if I get the right answer here. <laughs> so, could, could it be a thing, gentlemen? 
Very, very, very timely, right? That question, right? I just bought some 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 zero alcohol uh, products, and I was I was I was actually shocked that anybody would sell them because there was so. Well, I'm just gonna call them because I'm not mentioning who it is. I thought they were disgusting. Had nothing to do with the whiskey, right? Nothing to do. Huh, with wow. it. Then you even look at the at the ingredients list right on the back. And I think I, I don't have the bottle here, but it's in the lab. Right? It's like a long list of other stuff, right? That was added. But so I think I think there's a way to go because there is something about the alcohol, right? And there's a reason why we like drinking alcohol, right? It gives us it it it, it does something in our body. Right? I was just recently re- actually reading an article where people try to simulate that feeling right, without using alcohol, but the lightness. Right in your brain mm. and everything, right, and, and because it gives us, makes us easier in a social environment, right. Nobody really, I don't know, unless you're an alcoholic, nobody really likes to drink by himself, right. So, yeah. so, mm-hmm. but, but, uh, Stuart probably have mentioned this, right. But, but we have customers, and of course, they are not in the U.S. because they couldn't call it whiskey, right. If it is below forty mm-hmm. percent, right. But there mm-hmm. is, especially in Asia, there's a, there's a, there's a huge interest in lower alcohol, uh, yeah, sure. whiskey tasting spirits, where people they just they they they. They don't want the 40, the 45, the 50% of alcohol, <laughs> right? They want it to be in the range of 20, say, or 25 or something like this. And and that's that's the beauty of our process again, right? Because it's really, really hard to do that with the traditional process, right? Because what are you really going to do, right? You can only take something that was already five years in the barrel or 10 and then try to do something with it, dilute it down and, and try to, I don't know. And, and you might start adding other things which we don't, but with our process, right, we can just play around and try things and, and do so many different things to, to figure out how to give it give it the structure of the complexity that people are expecting. But yeah, I sometimes tell people if they want something that is really, really smooth, they should be drinking water. <laughs> don't drink whiskey. <laughs> Stu, do you, do you have anything to, to add to that answer? No, I don't think I could could top what uh, what. <laughs> you know, but I, I I do think that he was spot on at the beginning that it's a package deal, right? Mm. It's the taste mm. and the effect of alcohol that combined is why people drink it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And there's always going to be people that want that. There will be markets for people that that don't. Just like there's a market for decaf coffee. As an as an example, <laughs> crazy people, um, crazy and I think science will science will figure it out at, at some point. Yeah, um, but uh, you know we're big fans of I think the value of the package. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Call well, us traditionalists. Is- and being traditional. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Oh, well said. Oh, well said. Timing. <laughs> Here, Joshua, I'll let you yeah, take us out of that here. Is, that, that's brilliant. Um, <laughs> that was excellent. Stu Martin, th- this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Um, we always like to end with the question of w- what has you excited for the next year? What has you excited for the next five years? And I guess what I'd ask you is what has you excited for the next seven days, 14 days? <laughs> In all seriousness, what has you excited moving forward for this category that, that you're, like Jason had said, you're, you're really blazing a trail. What's keeping you going here? Uh, I think from my perspective, 
it's actually been amazing to me just to look back at the last year. We only launched the company to the public, I think it was October of 2020. So we've been we've been you know in the public's eyes mm-hmm. a, a little bit over a year now. And when we first launched, there was I'd say equal amounts of enthusiasm. Wow, this is cool, and skepticism. It's never worked before, lumping us into the accelerated aging category. I don't like this kind of product. And in the last 12 months to see how much support has come behind our approach, how many of the pundits and the skeptics um, have been converted, and how many of the uninitiated, again, those those underserved markets, those curious, those people who were intimidated, we've, we've opened up the market to. And to see that kind of change and pivot in such a short time gives me so much hope and so much enthusiasm and so much excitement that we can really change the game and change the industry for the better. We're not trying mm-hmm. to tear it down. We're trying to expand it. And then again, when you layer the sustainability element on top of it and make it good for the planet at the same time, that's a, you know, that's a win-win-win. So that's, that's really what I think I'm most excited about the next year is to look back at how far it's come in one year and see how, much, how far it can go in the next. I love that. And, and Marcus? Nice. Yeah, goes goes the same direction with what really motivates me is whenever I have a chance, like just like right now talking with you guys and hearing that uh, people who who clearly know about spirits much more than I do because I haven't been haven't been in this industry that long and I'm, I'm really also drinking a lot of our stuff and um, even though whenever <laughs> I go out I try to try to drink the thing, uh, different things to see the feedback that we're getting and the excitement and how people say oh man this is so good and then you tell them the story and they say I don't care I don't care that this was done in a couple of days this is so good right and then mm-hmm. we, we have we have people who said oh man I never liked whiskeys but this is so different this is so good and then they tell me with some people from Korea actually also also selling in Korea because they said oh my god wow. my parents are here and 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 they they don't like whiskeys but they love your stuff right how can they get it in Korea so <laughs> it's just it just amazes me and makes makes of course myself personally and I'm sure everybody else on the team too just like super proud that there are people out there who who kind of give us credit for all the work like Stu said there's so much work going in I always say we start working when everybody else stops working because they put it in the barrel and then they and then they leave it there and forget it for 20 years and and so that that's that's what me motivates me and to see yeah the, the excitement and uh, like uh, hearing hearing stories like from Joshua that he went he went to the whiskey the world of whiskeys event right and he and and, and he tasted our whiskeys and he thought they were good just makes me super happy and that motivates all of us I think the most I think he used a better word than good but uh, <laughs> I, I didn't want I didn't want to be I'll leave it with this I'll leave it with this comment and um, and Stu you you had said something just a minute ago uh, that made me think of this but We've got a colleague named Chris Udy, who's part of Impex Beverages, an uh, importing company that, that I work with. And a few years back, he introduced two new Japanese whiskey brands to the U.S. market, Uishi and Fukano. And the amount of pushback, initial pushback that he got to those brands was phenomenal because it was whiskey made from rice and a fermentation that used koji not just the grain the yeast the water but also koji and people would say well that ain't whiskey well technically speaking and and how how the laws go yet yes it is 100 percent whiskey and 
as people let their guards down, they discovered, oh, wait a second, this tastes really good. You let your guards down, and all of a sudden, something magical could happen. And, and Chris's point was, all we're doing with this product is expanding whiskey. We're expanding the whiskey pie, and we're expanding the flavors that can come from whiskey. Why is that a bad thing? It's not. And, and, that, and that's what I say about this. Just, just like you had said, Stu, you're expanding whiskey, and we're tasting spirits that are pretty damn good and quite enjoyable. And, and when I came to that blind, and this is the beauty about tasting things blindly, all of your prejudices that you would come to a spirit with are not there for you to fall back on. You're just tasting the product for what it is. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed what I'm tasting today, and I enjoyed the conversation as well. So, so thank you both again. We really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you, chaps. And agreed with what Joshua just said. By the way, if anybody wants to check out our spirits or find out where they can, uh, can get them, uh, bespokenspirits.com has all the information on there, and our Instagram is at bespokenspirits as well. Beautiful. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. I know I said it going in, and and I know that our listeners heard it during the interview, but I'd like to give you a moment on this as well, because I know you've quoted me on this in at least one of our other interviews that we've done since we recorded this, but that, that idea that's so compelling to me about consumers, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think so deeply and so fondly of our single cast nation fans, ambassadors, you know, consumers mm-hmm. for, for want of a much warmer word. Yeah, right. And I and right. And and I think of us and I think of myself as a consumer and, and you sure. as a consumer and, and how we engage with the industry on that level. It is easy for me to forget about <laughs> the much wider world, right? Even though I, you know, I've said it many times, I came from a family that was rut-gut blend drinkers, yeah. right? Yep. And, yep. and I know what they were buying. For you hearing Stu's comment there about there are so many consumers and we're not able to sell to all consumers at all times, knowing what you do with Impex, knowing mm-hmm. what you do with the sales team at Impex, what's your view of, of that statement and how often... Are you thinking about that, that there are more consumers than we can possibly sell to? I, I think about that often because, you know, if, if I'm looking at the Impex portfolio specifically, it's loaded with small independent distilleries that even if, even if the whiskey consumer community, whiskey consuming community, were a monolith, they could never produce enough liquid to satisfy the market. That's why, that's why Johnny Walker is an X million, you know, case per year brand and they have 27 to 30 some odd distilleries going into, you know, different iterations of their blends Again, you know, stepping back and just looking, if, if we always do this, right? We, we, we lean on Scotch whiskeys as the signpost here. Mm-hmm. They're producing so much liquid, yet 
85 to 88 or so percent of that remains your blends, your Johnny Walkers, your Buchanans, your Chivas, your your Ballantines, etc. I would argue that if there if there ever were a monolith, the monolith would be your blend drinker, the monolith would be your Jack and Coke people, the monolith would be your old fashioned drinker, uh, cheap bourbon on the rocks, right? The, that's your monolith. We're just so deep into it, and our listeners are so deep into it, that the world looking outward from within looks as if everybody's in the know and understands the nitty-gritty, and everybody wants to drink Kilhoman, and everybody understands Four Roses Small Batch Limited Edition. Like, no, that that's not the case here. And so, <laughs> and so with that said, as you know, wh- whether it's me with my impacts hat on or us with our single cast nation hat on, it's very clear to us that we're always talking to a group of people who are a niche within a niche within a niche. And then uh, w- specifically with the single cast nation side, we are then even further, a niche within that niche that is potentially within a niche. And so would I love everybody to know about Single Cast Nation? I would love that. Uh, would I want everyone to drink Single Cast Nation? <laughs> I, I, we, we, we simply couldn't do it. We simply could not do it, logistically speaking. Well, and I was thinking about this person in our intro, and I, I didn't mention the name because I figured I'd get away with it once we came out of the the interview but having the opportunity to put the question in front of Martin and Stu about drinking whiskey if it didn't contain alcohol yeah which as we're looking back and we're talking about Brian Davis in the second episode of course we had Mark Watt in the third fourth I get it wrong every, every time. time. Who was every the time. third? Because I feel like I'm doing that person a real disservice. Oh my gosh. Who was the third? Oh my gosh. I can't believe you can't remember who the third was as <laughs> I said, go to the internet said, and check who the third is. <laughs> <laughs> so we had David Sturk, we had Brian Davis, we had a. It's not Gordon and McPhail, is it? It's not no, an Urquhart. No, no, no. It's not an That wasn't in the no. third. Who's it? No, it was. Come on, without looking it up, without looking it up, who do you think it could have been? Uh, and if you've already seen it, don't play the it. game. Oh, do you know what? Okay, it, just here is why we don't know who it was. Because it was a post Whiskey Jubilee. It, it was like uh, a, it was a Seattle event. So we had a, a number of people. We had Matt Hoffman. We had oh, Jess Lomas. You know, uh-huh. when, when when she had her previous uh, employers, and we had. <laughs> Um, Jeff Kanoff of, of Copperworks mm-hmm. in there. And, uh, and so there you go. So oh man, I have to go back and listen to, I can't see, this is always the funny thing, right? I do this with TV shows and I'll come back to my point in a second, but I do this with TV shows. You ever done this where you've watched a TV show and you've, mm-hmm. you've generally remembered the arc and then you go back and you rewatch the show and you say, that happened in the first episode? Yes, yeah, I thought that was the yeah. third episode. Yeah. That happened in the second? I thought that was in the second season. And it was in the second episode? I, I, I remember doing it with Frasier, actually. Is going back and re-watching 
all of Frasier and just having so many moments where like, really, they're already at that stage in the arc? <laughs> wow. Uh-huh. But you're you're saying that happens to you too? That makes me feel Yeah, bad. yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we, Jason, we are, we're men of a certain age and and, <laughs> and these things happen. And on top of that, I mean, seeing as we're, we're in this tangent here, there's just so much, speaking of being consumers, there's so much media mm-hmm. to consume mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I would argue that I'm I'm watching far more television than I ever have ever, and mm-hmm. and trying to catch up on things, especially now being on on, on the treadmill and catching up mm-hmm. on shows there, and then and you just and then you return to things. You're like, oh, geez, I don't remember that. So so yeah, mm-hmm. so so you're not alone, That's Jason. Good. You're not alone. Well, that, that, that mm-hmm. makes me happy. And to be honest with you, I, you know, I, I talk about having an old man brain plenty of times. I don't even think this is victim of old man brain this is just how you watch a show mm-hmm. and how you remember a show mm-hmm. i really want to go back and rewatch russian doll on netflix yep. that was you have to fantastic season two's coming soon jason see the yeah oh i know i know date. yeah you you dislike oh i thought you were gonna What's say the... i thought you were gonna say i don't need a second season of that because you do that all the time you're like give me my one maybe two seasons I would like a second. Okay. I don't need a third. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, so getting to ask the the Mark Watt question oh, from right. se- from episode four of season one about the you know would you drink whiskey? I I think about that question all the time, all the time, and the thing that scares me the most about that question is I don't know if I would. It, it, you know, on one hand, I'm not drinking whiskey for the alcohol. I'm not drinking it to get drunk, certainly. Drinking it for the flavour of it. And if you could make it taste the same without the alcohol, that's a fascinating question. Well, Absolutely fascinating. Be, because being drunk is your end point, right? And there, there's so many degrees between not having a sip of something and being drunk. Right, I, I think if we can go through a series of quarter ounce pours over the course of a conversation and having water, you may start just feeling a bit more open and your mind is open a little more. And that's a great place to be in, I think, uh, for the vast majority of people, obviously. You know, I understand there are people that have problems and that, that's another thing. We're not mm-hmm. going to go down there. But but then so then there's that and and depending on how long you've been drinking you can live in that or how long you've been you know dabbling in whiskey you can live in that area for a period of time and then you start getting into the areas of of being tipsy and being buzzed and being a bit numbed and that that's your pivot point but mm-hmm. if but mm-hmm. if you're smart about it and you continue drinking water and you're still having friends and maybe you have a low ABV pint in between, you know, you, you can, <laughs> you, you know, you can make it last a bit longer. Cause for me, for me, when it comes to dabbling in whiskeys and looking to explore flavors, I don't even particularly love getting into being tipsy. Mm-hmm. I yep. like just being open and and that that's where I like to live, and and I think if you remove the alcohol, 
then you remove that potential to be open and you can remain analytic, analytical about it, but you're depriving yourself of the, of the emotion. I think that little bit of alcohol opens the door to emotion. a solid well yes is the yeah, answer yeah. okay <laughs> right. can, can you can you thank martin and Stu as you as you tend to do and then could you wake up the paper boy for me martin Stu, it was it was really a pleasure talking with you both and learning about your processes and and like i said before the interview like i said during the interview and like I said, when I was with Elijah back in September of 2021, tasting your spirits for the first time, it's clear you're making some really quaffable stuff. And, and I'm looking forward to watching you mature as, uh, oh. see what I did there? As, uh, as, as a business and starting to understand more your, your consumer's own profiles and your clients own profiles. I, I think what you're doing is is very cool, is very interesting. I think people need to be open to it. And I think it will live very comfortably alongside traditional practices. So thank you again. There you go. Best of luck, chaps. I I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It was learned a ton along the way. History, history. Thanks ever so much for giving him a little poke with a stick. Very gently, very respectfully. There's no newspaper boy abuse happening as any part of this podcast. I don't know. There was one time where he said, extra, and it was more like, extra. Like, like he really, I may have hit him too hard with the stick. A little pitchy. So the reason I've called you here today hmm. is we launched and sold out and shipped our second annual Thornton Distilling Co. Kosher for Passover American Rum. Mm -hmm. Single cask this year. Yes. Double cask last year. We'll see what the future holds for next year. But just wonderful support, as always, from the nation. In the US, it was a US release on that mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. But tremendous support for that. Uh, even nation members taking a step back, allowing those who observe kosher uh, for Passover dietary regulations. Uh, if somebody wasn't in the same boat, they stood back, they let the sale happen. And then you, you, you'd said this many times, leave it 30 minutes, leave it an hour. It took two days, it two took full days, two days. And, uh, and for it to sell out. We say this all the time. We've created such a wonderful community of people within Single Cast Nation, such a respectful group of people where we say, hey, guys, gals, could you help us here? Could you help out your fellow nation member here? Mm -hmm. and, and they say, you know what? We'll do just that. And 
And normally, if we put out a rum and we said, have at it, nation members would have at it and, and it would be gone. And we said, you know what, just pump the brakes a bit. And, and they did. And we sold out. Yes, it took a couple of days. But, you know, when you look at the list of people, you know, it's, it's obvious there, there are some, some Jewish names in there. So it's nice to see that those within our community that, that do follow those regulations, like you and I do, that they will have a nice little Passover. So, so thanks again to the nation members who kind of held off to let those that need something like this for their eight days of Passover the ability to have that. Yeah, it was really wonderful. Yeah, another another brilliant one. Actually, I had a friend text me and say, ooh, sales are a bit slow on the Thornton. And, and I wrote the friend back and I said, the sales could not have been more perfect. <laughs> when a bottle is available for 48 hours, I feel very confident that those who wanted a shot at purchasing it had a shot at purchasing it. And isn't it remarkable that we're living amongst a nation that thinks a two-day sellout of an entire cask is slow going? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, it wasn't two minutes. Sure, it wasn't two hours. Two days? I'll live with that all the time. All All the the time. time. I am totally down with that one. So, So that's the Thornton behind us. Brilliant, brilliant achievement. Thanks yeah, to the thanks nation. Thanks to everyone. Yeah. Our incoming heritage rye from Yakindanda's very own Backwoods Distilling is almost to these shores and very, very excited for the launch of that. Yeah, it's right. Our not our first rye, but our first rye whiskey from Australia, our first whiskey from Australia. Mm-hmm. And and we've had Lee Atwood uh, and his wife Bree on the on the podcast twice. Well actually Lee's been on twice and, and Bree joined him the second time around. Mm-hmm. So really go back. Uh, if you haven't listened to those episodes yet, uh, what they're doing down at Backwoods Distilling Company is phenomenal. And they're winning all sorts of awards between the rye, between their malt whiskey, their unusual red gum tree casks. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really, they're doing some fine stuff and they're good people. I, you know, I think, I think quite often when, when we talk with Sam and we ask him, you know, what was your interest in bringing this distillery on and that distillery on? And he always goes back to, these are good people. They're good people who share a vision, and and I would argue that Lee and Bree share a, a vision with us. You know, they're they're just they're just good people. So we're really happy to be partnering with them. And on the bottle, it has the spirit of collaboration logo that 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 we've been using for many many a year now, and we're proud to put that on our label uh, with this collaboration here. And we will have a, a tasting video. Uh, go on to YouTube for that one, saying a bit more about this Heritage Rye. Um, This is a US nation purchase only. And to circle back, and this is always your role when I'm talking, I'm very excited to to play the role of Joshua here. Hmm. When you mentioned Sam a moment ago, that would be Sam Filmus, president of Correct, 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 yep. 
uh, importation uh, into the United States. So, and, and obviously we talk about Sam all the bloody time, but Sam film us. <laughs> so that's the Backwoods Heritage Rye that... Mm, 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 oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait. Also going to release a very small allotment. We've been doing some, some club collaborations and putting together some club picks. And we actually have a couple of blends. I, I feel like we've been talking about blends as today has gone along. And mm-hmm. you mentioned the, the monolithic following that, that blends experience. And here we are with a couple of single cask blends. Mm-hmm. They will be small numbers. They have been splits with clubs. And absolutely delicious. With good ages on them as well. 14-year-old single cask and a 20-year-old single cask. Yes, and one of them, you'll have to refresh my memory, uh, one of them is a blended malt and one of them is a blended whiskey, both of them being delicious. The 20-year-old, if memory serves, is the blended malt. Yes, I think you're, I think you are correct there. And yeah... Those were exciting casks to purchase. We we got those what in 2018, 2019. A fair while ago, yeah. A fair while. <laughs> uh, so th- so those those will be really great to share with nation members. And like you had said, you know, we worked with these two clubs and they picked up what their club needed. You know, we always knew we would have some left over to share with nation members, similar to to a four square we did some time back where we had some bottles Indeed. left over and we sold to our nation members. So we're going to do that again. And these are just crackers, just absolutely wonderful single cast blends. And just like I said about the backwoods, we'll pop up a tasting video. We'll get that on YouTube for the, for the nation members. Mm-hmm. Those, those remaining bottles will be going to, to us online uh, members as well. Don't think we've forgotten about you in ROW. ROW number three is still getting out to markets. Jess says this every week when we talk to her. We're working on getting uh, ROW three out to Germany. It's on the water, heading to Japan, and there should be something uh, coming together with our friends in Canada very soon as well, and we'll have updates there also. Mm-hmm. ROW4 has been selected, working on some things behind the scenes there. Jess is beside herself with excitement. And then the question that we're getting right now is retail release number nine in the United States. And we are working on it. Global logistics being what they are, it's not how we might want it to be right now, but it certainly has our attention. It certainly has not been forgotten. And you have your friend Elijah uh, (laughs) fighting your corner, dear listeners, uh, for that, so, so there we go, and we're we're certainly seeing a groundswell in Australia, and New Zealand, uh, for taking our product down there as well. Um, that's yes. a that's a that's a twenty twenty two project we're working on. Doesn't necessarily mean it will appear in twenty twenty two, but it is something we are breaking ground on for our friends down there. I'm so glad you went with project rather than problem. 
right? That, that could have gone <laughs> two ways there. So. <laughs> so, so there you go. So that's that's a very quick roundup. I know we didn't have news in the first episode, and so we wanted to make sure we covered a bit of ground in the second episode. Indeed. And, and now, Jason, I think we have an email we've been meaning to get to uh, in, in the last episode of season five we had our mailbag episode and we'd mentioned the name kevin dunlop before a chicago guy who'd sent along two questions or maybe more than two but there was definitely it was more than two two, but there was one bit that we said you know what we're going to bring this up in a season six episode so you've got the question in front of you i have indeed just to refresh listeners minds in the mailbag episode uh, Kevin had asked about turning the kind of the the amateur love affair into some kind of professional gig, and and we'd oh. given and he you know, he he had moved in from there. Scotland. He had a, he had a similar exactly, background yes. to you. Yes, okay, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. That was Kevin, um, and so we we'd covered that one, which he hadn't actually sent in for the mailbag, but it was such a good question, one that we hear a lot. Yeah, it was well worth covering. Yep. Yeah. The the he sent in two for the mailbag, and the one that we answered was about uh, dream picks, uh, one from Scotland, one from the US, and one from ROW, uh, which was just so yeah. beautifully framed as a question that that we couldn't resist. But he he had one, and I think it fits perfectly with the ground we covered in today's interview. And so Kevin Dunlop asks. Do you think whiskey has a green issue? We are seeing distilleries talk about carbon neutral, etc. Mm-hmm. But in your recent episode with the rum distillery in Australia, there that's perfect <laughs> timing as well. <laughs> they talked about barrels from Kentucky transporting barrels 1,200 miles, etc. I know that was a rum episode, but whiskey distilleries do the same thing. How do you see the industry changing to be more eco-friendly? Well, I, I can think of a few examples of at least Scottish distilleries talking about green initiatives, right? Where they're recycling some of their heating water for, for other purposes. And then you've got distilleries like Ardnamurchan where they're using uh, you know, recycled materials for their cartons and, and things like that. And, and they really are. I mean, when, when it comes to green distilleries, I think Arden American endeavors to be the most green distillery in all of Scotland and, and may have already achieved that. But, but that's a good question. I think, I think Nick Nian would give them a good run for oh, their Nick money. Oh, Nick Nian might, yeah. They may have to. Nick Need also comes to mind when you're talking about packaging, where they have spearheaded uh, a campaign where if you've already purchased a bottle that came with packaging, yeah, and you'd like another bottle from them, you can order it without the external packaging. But I guess the question is, what would be the number one thing that a distillery or the parent company of distilleries? would have to fight against or fix to become more green. I, l- I really liked his example of, you know, bourbon barrels being shipped, you know, thousands of miles 
to get to its definitely destination. Definitely a part of it. Right? That, definitely that's, a part of it. That's a part of it. Now, now, you know, I know cooperages like Speyside Cooperage and some of the others will purchase bourbon barrels, have them broken down, and then shipped over, and then they're recoopered into, you know, in, in Scotland. And so I think you're minimizing the amount of space used, the amount of fuel used, and so on. But at the same time as the industry's kind of moving away from that practice, you know, no, no less a, an industry titan than Jim McEwen said, once barrels started getting shipped ready built mm. as they had stood in America, better casks came in. The, the jigsaw puzzle rebuild was to his mind to the detriment, to the detriment. of casks. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the, the line was always, why would you ship fresh air to Scotland in a, in a, a ready built barrel? Why not flat pack it, not ship the air? Now the response has been, but if you ship it whole, you get a better barrel, which is better for whiskey. Well, the, the, the part of the uh, let me let me just say something really quickly here. Um, part of that is is done out of necessity, because here in the U.S. we can only use that bourbon barrel once, and and there is a waste component to that. In, in my mind is a question, you know, if you're chopping down trees to build a barrel and you build the barrel, you do the new char, you create bourbon from it. If you don't use that elsewhere, then is that potentially more wasteful than, right? So, so, th so there's that. And then you can sort of hyper-focus on other whiskey-producing countries back to our friends down there in Australia and New Zealand where they're using a large proportion of wine casks because Australia has such a big wine industry. And, and you know, I know there are some people like, oh, Australian whiskey with their wine casks. Well, that's the casks that are available to them. Like maybe give them a little, you know, uh, a nod of the of the hat or the tip of the hat, you know, for for trying to to create something that's a bit more hyper focused on what an Australian product could or should look like, while staying a bit greener. I kind of like that. So, sorry, I just I just wanted to get that in there that that if we used a, a whiskey or a bourbon barrel once that that's potentially less green than shipping it across the world to then be used for a second time, a third time, a fourth time, and so on. Well, I, I think when it comes to any of this, it's all a series of trade-offs. Yeah. So, so even from the very beginning, should we be cutting down trees that are able to absorb <laughs> carbon dioxide from our atmosphere, right? <laughs> We're probably already off to a, to a bad start. Yeah. So then to your point, well, if you have cut it down and you have made a barrel from it, how much life can you get out of that barrel? Mm -hmm. Yes, if you're shipping it overseas rather than keeping it in the United States, you know, you've, you've got a different proposition in front of you. The, the environmental question for me within our industry really comes back to the raw components, mm. which is the trees that are growing, the water that's running, the barley that's being grown. Sure. And, I, and, I th and I think one of the big questions is, 
How is the barley being grown? And are we using, you know, more modern agricultural practices are using um, an abundance of synthetic fertilizers that are causing runoff, that are then increasing nitrogen, nitrogen levels in streams and rivers that are making their way towards drinking water. Mm-hmm. You've then got the monocropping of a commodity, you yeah. know, rather yep. than, you know, diversified farming. And again, we're back to, but there's such demand for that barley. Why wouldn't you turn your fields over to that and try and fill that niche as a farmer? And so I, I think that's that's problematic there as well. And then you've got the energy use. And you alluded to this earlier in this answer is the energy use within any distillery and how are they trying to cut down on that energy use Mm. even the the you know where are you warming water how are you warming water can you warm water in your process and then double that back into your process Mm -hmm. uh we've got uh biomass is it generators at places like bonahaven and brookladdy on isla yeah 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 right Right, and so we're seeing that. You go visit uh, George Grant at Glenfarclas, they'll talk about the water treatment plant that they've got behind the distillery. So they're not just putting their wastewater back into streams around the distillery. Um, you know, another one of the raw ingredients is obviously peat and the slow regeneration of peat. And I know that there's a question about how is peat being used within the industry now? And... You know, I know there are certain distilleries that are re-examining how they use the beat. They're going to keep using it, but can they use it in a way that is less disrupt- disruptive? And so th- these questions are definitely being asked, and we certainly don't have all the answers as we're sitting here now. But I think the fact that those questions are being asked of distilleries and we're trying to get away from just being pawned off with the the easiest answer, yeah, yeah. it gets me thinking corks, right? The the neck capsules that get torn off and go straight into the trash, the bottles and how we're recycling those. I, I think every part of the process has questions that can be asked. And if we start from a position of, well, any industry is detrimental to the environment, we follow up with, well, how do we make it as little intrusion yeah. as possible? And perhaps that becomes the goal. Yeah, I, you know, I wish, I wish we did have the answers, but it's it's clear the question <laughs> was asked, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so it's obvious that that no one has the exact answer. However, there are distilleries that are trying to make headway and are trying to be visible for making headway. And my hope is that, you know, these are all single malt producers or large bourbon producers or, or, or what have you that are saying, hey, this is what we're doing. Again, back to the, the signpost of Scotch whiskey, my hope is that all of those distilleries that no one knows about, where they're just making liquid to go into a blend, hopefully they're, they're following suit with what those single malt brands are doing moving forward well and gosh if we're talking about industry on one hand we're talking about consumers on the other and and i 
And I think when when one engages with a brand, it's asking the follow-up question. And I know for us, when we go to distilleries and they talk about, oh, and, and the leftover mash is draft, and that goes to the farmer and makes for happy cows. Like, that's pitched as a, oh, look at this complete cycle here. It's it's become a red herring. There are environmental questions to be asking separate from the draft going to local farmers. 100%. Yeah, it's it's a nice way of saying, hey, look what we've done. Let's move on and show you another process. And please don't 100%. ask us more questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Want to have some fun before we get out of here? No. Oh, wait. Okay. Cheerio, everybody. Thanks very much. <laughs> Reach out to us. Questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. No Ian Whiskey. <laughs> Jason, so, I always yeah. want to have fun with you. Girls just Good. and guys just want to have fun. <laughs> so we talked in episode one about the kind of the, the post-interview portion of our podcast doing some some slightly different things. And I've had this little game in mind for a while that I'm going to try out with you today and see if it becomes something uh, we either continue or even start to do with with the occasional future guest. Mm, okay, all right. So I have so hide the sausage. reached... <laughs> That's only when we're back to doing in-person interviews. <laughs> that doesn't work on Zoom. So, so I've... I've pulled the 1989 first edition Malt Whiskey Companion by Michael Jackson. Oh my gosh. Off my shelf. Project 1989, huh? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine Jess and Sweet Scott were being born at the same time as Michael Jackson's Malt Whiskey Companion? Oh my gosh, amazing. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. It just reminded me how, how old we are anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah and so. I would, and I was, I was, I was seven years away from beginning my whiskey journey. And so the, the thought that I could pick up this seven year old book and it's Michael Jackson's 1989 companion. <laughs> uh-huh. So, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you his, his overview of the distillery mm-hmm. And in this edition, he has one tasting note for this distillery. One tasting. And I would like you okay. to guess the distillery. Okay. Do should I should I have a little pen and paper here to? No, just no? Oh, your your mind's like a steel trap. Just just listen and and think. <sighs> Gosh. All right. You have a lot of faith in me. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I also have to read the paragraph without saying the distillery if he says it in the paragraph. I'm also not going to read details okay. that would give away too much. Okay. Okay. All right. This is Okay. This is going to be fun. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So, Michael Jackson writes, "A lovely old-fashioned Highland malt that can be found only in independent bottlings. Mm-hmm. Perfect for bedtime. 
He then goes on to describe where it is, and I'm not going to say that. <laughs> he then says, uh-huh. this distillery, he uses the name, this distillery was founded in 1897 and extended in 1965. It has been temporarily closed since 1985. Um, hmm. he, he then says this thing that, that I really didn't know even with the distillery name in it. This distillery has no connection with a variety of liqueurs and blended whiskies called blank and produced in various parts of the world. Its malt whiskey has been a component of the Johnny Walker blends. Huh. The one and only tasting note... <laughs> is for a 1970 Gordon and McPhail Connoisseur's Choice release okay. at 40% alcohol. Okay. And he writes, colour, full, gold. There is a comma between full and gold. Interesting. Nose, sherry-ish, <laughs> aromatic, smoky. Body, medium to full. Soft, rich, lovely to see Michael Jackson using rich, a quality that ended up in a flavometer. Palette, malty with notes of barley and vanilla, smoky and full of flavour. A powerful, interesting combination of malty sweetness and peaty smokiness. Finish, Mm. soft. Smoky. Score. Out of 100, 76. It's so interesting with uh, Michael Jackson's scoring. Uh, (laughs) He doesn't score high numbers, but he always has nice things to say. I've always liked that about him. So, all right. So, So here's a thing. So he mentioned Highland Distillery. That's used mm-hmm. in Johnny Walker blends. And so my mind went mm-hmm. in one place. And then when he called it out mm-hmm. as smoky, my mind changed a little bit. Uh, the fact that the distillery was opened in 1897 is unfortunately not very helpful because they're... Oh, that hasn't right? given it away. Yeah, yeah there, there's a good number of distilleries like like our dear friend Ian Allen with, with Glenn Murray. Smoky. Rich. <laughs> Closed in 1985. Mm-hmm. And here he is writing four years later. Yeah. That it was temporarily closed. And it's in, in Johnny Walker. So a smoky Highland whiskey that can only be found in independent bottlings, at least in 1989. That is a Johnny Walker component. <sighs> Gosh. Is there, is there anything else? Is this like, <laughs> so let me ask you this. If, if I were to read that to you, would you, would, like, is it, is it clearly missing things or do you feel there's enough hints in there that you would have gotten it correct? I don't think I would have got this correct. I think this has enough 
head fakes uh, totally, as we yeah. as we use in the world of basketball. So so let me tell you this. Let me okay, yeah. there is the geographical sentence that I that gives away a lot. Oh, um, but the, yeah, but then what if I get it wrong? <laughs> now I'm afraid. You won't. Okay, okay. You won't. Okay. So I'm not going to give you that just yet. What I'm going to say is this is not a distillery that we think of as a Diageo distillery. Ah, uh, okay. 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 I I will also go on to say not only was it temporarily closed in 1985, it ended up reopening for a short period before being reclosed and ultimately demolished. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Oh, I thought for sure you were like, oh, then it's this distillery. No, okay. I, 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 I was really... helping you with that information. And then demolished. Huh. Uh, well, it, it. I think it does start to narrow things down a bit. <laughs> okay, I'm. I'm <laughs> uh, if, if I give you the sentence that I haven't read to you, you are going to slam dunk the naming of this distillery. Okay, I'm just going to take continue. A, the, I'm going to take a sip of a tiny injury. sample that I have here. To see, <laughs> it, your sample isn't a 1970 uh, distillate uh, bottled by uh, Gordon McPhail in the Connoisseur's Choice range, are you? No, it is a 1978 uh, bottling of a 26-year-old uh, by by Hart Brothers of this distillery, and I don't, I, I, I don't think it's them. Okay, okay, yeah. Well, you should you should tell the. You tell the listeners what you're tasting. Last time I was in Chicago, I received a sample of a 26-year-old from the Glen Albin Distillery from from Nick Reimer. Reimer? Reimer? I, uh, Nick, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your last name. And you're, you're pronouncing that with neither rhyme nor reason. <laughs> oh, oh, I like that. And so, and so my thought was, oh, maybe, maybe it's a Glen Albin, but but. Yeah, it's not. I just tasted it, and this a tiny sip from the bottle. I told him I was going to wait for the right moment to be opening this, and that <laughs> moment's coming soon. So I just took a tiny little pull from the bottle. Um, well, let, let me add this in while okay. you're while you're having a little think here. Is that there are aspects of this tasting note that I wouldn't think for this distillery. There are pretty discernible qualities from this distillery that are missing from this tasting note. And one of the things that I want to achieve with this kind of fun little game is going into 1989 and having Michael Jackson clearly talk about 1970 distillate the way you and I sitting in 2022 (laughs) would be talking about 2003 distillate. And as we look back, 2003 doesn't feel that long ago. And for Michael Jackson writing in 1989, 1970 wasn't that long ago. Yeah. But I want to see what was a distillery style like then? What was a known tasting note like then? And I think this example does a good job of showing we don't really talk about this distillery now the way Michael Jackson talked about it in 1989. Does Diageo not own the distillery anymore 
because it was demolished. Like, do they no. still, okay. No, 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 yeah, yeah. no. It was owned by somebody else. It was owned by somebody else. Yeah, they, they sold it. I just off the top of my head don't know the year it was sold. And I would reach for the Ingvar Ron Malt Whiskey yearbook to get the answer to that question. Do, do you want me to give you this, this uh, geographical sentence? Yeah, g- give me the geographical it's, sentence, see if that helps me. The distillery is in the heart <laughs> of Speyside at Karen. Just yeah. across the river from Dal Ewan, with which it has historically been linked. I feel so stupid right now. Like, is it? <laughs> you know this answer, Joshua. But, and, and so that's the thing. Like, I know the answer, but the, at least I think I know the answer, but the smoky note is throwing Ignore me. the smoky note. Then Ignore it's imperial. Ignore the smoky note. It's imperial. It's imperial, right? <laughs> so I, if he didn't include Smokey, I think I would have gotten that much earlier on because everything else made sense. But when he said Smokey, that totally threw me off. That's why I wanted to start here. Oh, because man. isn't it so telling that you collect Imperial? Yeah. How, how many of those old Imperials that you've, acquired and opened and tasted, do you think, oh, Smoky Imperial? I don't need a hand to count the number because there isn't one. There's not a single one where, where there's smokiness. It makes me wonder if, you know, if it was a connoisseur's choice, if, if there was something else going on there. Maybe that Imperial was in like a peated cask beforehand or something. <laughs> but boy, did that throw me off. Holy crap. Yeah, even even when he talks about the nose, sherryish, and I think yes, right, and I think this is so telling that we've talked about since creating single cast nation, we wanted transparency. We ourselves, as consumers, felt like we needed more than oh, it was matured in oak. Well. Yes, as we've said, no shit, Sherlock. It was matured in oak, mm-hmm. an SWA regulation. Here you've got no cask influ- no cask information at all. At all yeah. Right? We don't know if this was a second fill sherry hoggy that just put a little bit of sherry onto the nose for Michael here. Mm-hmm. We don't know if this was a sherried Isla cask that they had floating around the warehouse that they only bottled one of these ever <laughs> and it was the 1970 Connoisseur's <laughs> Choice that Michael Jackson ended up tasting. I, I do wish there, there had been another note there. I, I would like to have gone past just the one note for yeah. a tasting note. But but it, this has done exactly what I wanted it to do, <laughs> which is, again, and it, and it fits with what we've talked about through today's episode, the evolution of an industry. Mm-hmm. The way there is a lot more sharing now about the cask type. Yeah. About the spirit, right? The strengths have increased. Talking about Imperial as smoky has really gone the way of the dodo, um, even though this was you know, an N of one for Michael Jackson. It's not scientific in any way, shape or form. But the distillery wasn't owned by Diageo no. when it was finally shuttered, when it was finally demolished. It was, it was a Pernod Ricard distillery, uh, you know, Shiva's brothers. And so, like, 
I, I love being able to show that the whiskey industry wasn't born from whole cloth in 2005. No, right? yeah, it, it, exactly. Right? It went through, like you had said, evolution and, and change and, and you know, some of that just being the changing of hands and, and where that liquid is destined to go. I was, yeah, wow. That it, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this smoky note. Like every other part adds up to imperial. Oh, <laughs> right. Oh. <laughs> well, and, th- and that was why I wanted to see if you would allow the smoky to to cloud your your vision, or whether you would plow through it, or even if there would be context for this being a, a 1970 well, version. So think about what Smokey did in the context of a Highland distillery from a 1970 distillate. How right. few Highland distilleries were using peat. And so, you know, and so for a second I went Brora, and I said, no, I know that's, there's no way it could have been Brora. Um, and then I said, well, maybe Ben Romach, because, you know, they had a PD one, and Gordon McPhail now owns Ben Romick, and this was a Gordon McPhail bottling that that he talked about as tasting. No, no, that, I, don't, I don't think that's it. And and then it was demolished, so it's definitely not Ben Romick, and and you know, and so, oh God, that was that was fun, Jason. That was fun. yeah, yeah. And I also think as we as we go through some more of these, you know, with you with guests. It, it'll be fun to build that context for that 1989. Yeah. Um, to, to see, okay, what's what's he hitting out the ballpark? Or not what is he hitting out the ballpark, but but what has remained consistent from 89 to 2022? And then where are those moments that are, you know, far, far and away different? Indeed, so. indeed. I'm excited. Cheers for cheers for playing along, listeners. I hope that worked for for all of you. I wonder how many were were screaming um, imperial at their their radio controls, uh, and how many were also thrown by the smoky. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It'd be interesting to hear if people playing along at home what right. where the track they were going down. So if you wanna. If you want to send in a question like like Kevin Dunlop did, if you wanted to chime in, we'd love to hear what your answers were along the way. And, uh, you know, if anybody got Imperial off the bat, good job. Well done. I, I was not able to do it. Tons of fun. Well, thank you, Joshua, and, and obviously Martin and Stu. Kevin, as you just said a moment ago. Ah, good episode. I enjoyed that. Likewise. Uh, I will see you. Oh, I can't wait for our season three guest. Season three? Yep. Season three? So uh, I can't wait for our episode three of season six guest. Absolutely. We're going to follow on very nicely. Very mm-hmm. nicely. All right. Ah, well, cheers. Cheers to you. Cheers to, to the world at large. Cheers to the roving nation. Cheers, everybody. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh, that's good. That was so bad, it gave me time to actually reach for <laughs> stemware. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Cheers.
elephant, three elephant, four elephant, five elephant. Glad I could look up and see the there are five notches up there. Mm-hmm. Five notches on your belt. More than that, they're Buenas notches. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under. <laughs> that was really good, Jason. With One Nation Under Whiskey. Dot com. Let's try this again. <laughs> <clears throat> Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey. Why can't I do this? I keep on wanting to say dot com. Strange. 